Well, we continue this morning our journey through the biblical wisdom literature. And what we're doing for these first five messages in the series is just to give you a feel for each of the books. We've only really been able to skim the surface. Uh, we'll look at some of the, the topics within those books a little later as we move through the series. But our journey today brings us to a real gem. There is no other book in the Bible quite like the book of Job. Even within the wisdom books, the book of Job is set apart by its pain, by its raw emotion and by its passion. It is a compelling first-hand account of one man's struggle to reconcile all that he is experiencing in life with all that he knows of the world and all that he knows of God the Father. And there is no other biblical book that has received quite the literary praise as has the book of Job. Poet Alfred Tennyson described it as the greatest poem of ancient and modern times. While Thomas Carlyle, who is a Scottish critic, essayist, uh, novelist and philosopher among many strings that he has to his bow, he has described the book as a noble book, saying there is nothing written, I think, in the Bible or out of it of equal literary merit. One of the greatest things ever written. That is, it's high praise, isn't it? And it's a shame that we don't read this book more than we do. Many others simply just refer to this book as the Shakespeare of the Bible. Now the critics, they love Job because of its language and its poetry and its prose and its form and its content and its use of allegory and song and because it has a timeless and universal appeal which you need for something to be a classic piece of literature. But for the rest of us, the non-critics, the, the lay readers, we just love the book of Job because we can connect with it. All of us at some stage in our life must face difficult times and many of us will ask the same sort of questions that we find within this book. And there is something about that harsh reality of Job's wrestle with evil and suffering and the justice of God that somehow satisfies us in a way that neatly packaged up theology will never be able to do. Because it's relatable. We can all relate to Job and some of us to his three friends as well, his four friends in fact. We can feel his anguish. We know what it means to experience loss and grief. And so his questions become our questions. His struggles become our struggle as we work through um, his reasoning with him. Now, the book of Job begins with what might be described as the biblical equivalent of once upon a time. We start with the very first verse. It reads, in the land of Uz, there was a man his name was Job. And we don't get a great deal more detail than that. Unlike many other Old Testament books, 
There's nothing tying this particular story to a date. There's no reigning monarch that we can work out and date and place this, this particular story. There's nothing about its historical setting. And we don't really know much about this place, Ooze, except um, the little bit that we're given in verse 3 that tells us that it was in the east and therefore it's not Israelite territory. And there is certainly no information about who might have written this book, except what we can infer from the, the third-person language that it wasn't Job himself. It is what has been left out here that sets this book apart from much of the rest of the Old Testament. And I think it's safe to assume that these details have been left out because they are not important. What is important in the book of Job it's not when or where, it is the content of the story itself, the questioning and the wrestling that goes on there. Now, this diagram looks complicated. It's not a graph. It's intended to be a bookcase. Um, and it's intended to show you what the basic structure of the book is all about. So we begin with a prologue that sets the scene and gives us some basic details. We finish with an epilogue at the end that closes off the story. Everything else in between is speeches. It's in the form of poetry, which comes in the form of speeches. And we see two distinct blocks. There's the first block, which consists of many shorter speeches. And these are between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, the Temanite, who's given there in blue, Bildad, the Shuite, who's in green, and Zophar, the Namathite, who's given there in yellow. And so you can see from that diagram, one of the friends speaks, Job responds. Another friend speaks, Job responds. And there's a three, these speeches come in, in a series of three. And then we have a bit of a, what you could consider to be an interlude in chapter 28, where there's a reflection on where can wisdom be found. This question is posed and it's answered in chapter 28. And that um, sort of leads us into the next series of speeches, which are longer speeches, and they're presented more like monologues. Uh, first, we have Job, who presents his final case. Then there's a young man, Elihu, who's been off to the side, uh, listening while the older men speak, he comes in and says his bit before finally God breaks his silence and speaks. And then we finish off with a very short response from Job. Now, the prologue introduces us to all but one of the characters and it sets up the background to all of the questions that we'll encounter in this book. The central character, of course, is Job. And a remarkable description is provided in the very first verse. Job, we are told, is blameless. And that's a word that is critical to the whole rest of the story. So remember it. He is blameless. No blame in him. He's upright, we're told. The next thing we're told is that he feared God. Now, what did the Proverbs tell us about the fear of the Lord? It is the beginning of wisdom. So not only did he fear the Lord, we're told, he also shunned evil. 
So the deliberately clear picture that we get here of Job is that he was a man who was ticking all of the right boxes. It's not just that he was a pretty good sort of bloke. He was blameless, completely without blame. He's upright, he fears the Lord and he shuns evil. He might well be the poster child for this verse in Proverbs. Do not be wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. You know, if there was a, a book that you could look up these verses, you might find a picture of Job demonstrating what that verse means. But for those of us who are familiar with the way that a lot of the Proverbs are laid out, we know that often they come in two parts, and this one is no exception. The second part of that proverb comes in the next verse. This will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Now, for those of us who know that by the end of the prologue, Job is going to be lying in ashes, scraping away at his diseased body with a broken piece of pottery already in this first little part of the book. We can see what's being set up here. What does this proverb look like when your poster child looks like that? What do we do with that? Where's the wisdom in that? And that is what this book addresses. Job and the book of Ecclesiastes that we're going to cover next week, both of them in tandem really help balance out the book of Proverbs and to fill out what it means to live wisely, not just when things are going well, not just when things are as we think they should be and easy to understand, but in all circumstances of life. To use a, a weather analogy, um, in Proverbs, the forecast only hints at rain. But in Ecclesiastes, what you get is more like Melbourne's weather. You know, you get a bit of everything. Sometimes it does what the weather forecast says it should do, and other times it does completely the opposite. But what you get in Job is the full devastating force of all of the natural elements. It's like a flood or a bushfire. And floods and bushfires, they don't happen often, but when they do, they're devastating. And so together, these wisdom books help us to package up what it means to live wisely in all of these life circumstances. And the book of Job is clever on many, many levels, but perhaps its greatest achievement is the way in which it draws the reader in to participate with Job, to feel his emotion, to ride that spiritual roller coaster that he goes through from the depths of despair and back up again towards revelation, all of the time exploring this issue of wisdom. This is not a book of easy answers. You won't get to the end of the book and go, oh, yeah, I know. It's a book that makes us think. And you can continue to read this book for all of your life and you will still have something to think about. And that's part of its brilliance. A truly great teacher doesn't just lay out the answers for the students. They teach the students how to think for themselves. And for me, 
that process of having wrestled with hard things along with Job makes the outcome all the more worthwhile. So the next couple of verses, verses 2 to 5, they fill in a little bit more detail for us about Job and all of it serves to underscore the fact that he is the quintessential model of a godly man. He's got seven sons and three daughters. Now, children were considered a blessing, even more so if they were sons. So having that ratio just tells you that he was blessed. He owns loads of animals. That's what those huge numbers are telling you. He owned lots and lots of animals. He was a wealthy man. He was even considered the greatest man in all the East. And on top of all these blessings, so scrupulous was this character Job that he routinely offered sacrifices for his children just in case they might have sinned. So he was like a priest for his own family. And in all of this, we're left in no doubt. This is an exemplary character that we're beginning with. Now, the identity of the next character that we're introduced to in the prologue has been the cause of much confusion because for whatever reason, the, the translators of most of our English Bibles have elected to drop the definite article from the Hebrew word here and they capitalise it making the Satan, Satan, a proper name. And this is a bit like me introducing Pastor Glenn to you as pastor. You know, I say, hi, how are you going? This is pastor. It doesn't make sense in English because his name's not pastor. His name is Glenn. Pastor is his role. And that's a little bit like what has happened here. If you look at any reasonable quality commentary, it will attest to the fact that the definite article is there in the Hebrew of Job 1.6. So what we are reading as Satan should be the Satan, which is not a proper name. It is a role description that this character is playing. He is the Satan, which means he is the accuser or the adversary. Now, we know that Satan does play that role, but lots of others in the Bible have played it too. Solomon's enemies who come to him at the end of his life, they were a Satan. Even King David has had this name. The Philistines called him that name. And even an angel of the Lord has been called that name, the one who stood opposing Balaam when he came with his donkey. Thus, Satan forms part of God's court in the prologue. And that's a whole lot easier to imagine than God standing there having court with Satan. The Satan takes the adversarial role and he disputes that true devotion to God exists. And that sets up what's about to happen in the book. The next three characters that we're introduced to, they all play the same role. They're playing the role of conventional wisdom. They're playing a role of spiritual maturity. These are three of Job's friends who all consider themselves to be theologically sound and sufficiently wise to understand the ways of God. God himself also appears in the prologue and he's the initiator of this story. 
Thereafter, he remains silent for most of the rest of the book while human wisdom plays itself out in the various speeches before finally he breaks his silence and he responds personally to Job. Now, with the exception of Job's wife, who plays a very small cameo role in the prologue, the only other character within the book who's not introduced to us in the prologue is the fourth friend, the much younger Elihu, who thinks himself to be wiser than all of the elders, but out of respect for their age, he allows them to have their say first before he comes in and gives his 10 cents worth. Now, the prologue is where everything happens to set the scene for the wrestling over all of the big questions in this book, big questions of life. And those questions or the, the toing and froing about those questions make up the bulk of the speeches that we find in the rest of the book. Job is first held up as this blameless, scrupulous character in his devotion to God, for whom all of life looks rosy. Everything is going well for him. Then enter the adversary, the Satan, and he launches a two-pronged attack, calling firstly Job's righteousness into question by suggesting that it's only conditional on God providing all these good things for him. But he also calls God's sovereignty into question because he infers that God prospers and protects Job because he needs Job to love him. So the adversary challenges God to remove all of that from Job and see what happens. And just as he did in the Garden of Eden, God is again willing to allow human beings the freedom to choose whether they will accept him or reject him. He is confident that Job will make the right choice in spite of any circumstance. And so God accepts the challenge but he puts limits to protect Job physically. Well, a string of terrible disasters strike Job and they systematically strip him of his servants, of all of his livestock, of his children, all 10 of them. And Job, of course, is devastated and grief-stricken by what has happened. But he does not falter in his praise of God. Well, the adversary returns, and this time he challenges God to go further and to strike at Job's flesh and bones. Again, God puts limits on Job, on what can be done to Job, but Job is afflicted with painful sores that cover his body from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. And towards the end of the prologue, we find Job sitting in ashes, probably outside the walls of wherever he lived, out near the garbage dump where they burned all the garbage. He's scraping away at these sores with a piece of broken pottery. Could there be a more pitiful scene? Job at this point has lost everything but his very life. His health is gone, his family have gone, his servants have gone, his livestock is gone, 
Still, Job does not falter. But already perhaps some of us are as we read through this book. It's around this point that the hair starts to bristle on the necks of most people. Because although God never lifted a finger against Job personally, he did allow for all of these tragedies that took place in Job's life to occur. And for many of us, that is a very bitter pill to swallow. That is not how our mindset understands a loving God. Job's wife steps in and she represents probably the average human being. She steps into a scene of despair to give voice to the feelings that many of us who have lived through tragedy or suffering will have felt at some stage on that journey. Now remember, she's lived this nightmare with her husband. She too has lost her family. The loss of all their livestock and assets affects her future as much as it does his future. And now here she sees her husband in this humiliating situation. There could be no greater come down for one who was once known as the greatest man in all of the East. And she says, are you still holding on to all of your integrity? Curse God and die. Hers is the voice of the people. How could God have let this happen? In human terms, the question revolves around this issue of why does God allow suffering? This is not how we think God should act. We want to see good people rewarded and bad people punished. But beyond this question of human suffering, but not apart from it, there lies an even deeper question. And that's the beauty of of Job, it's like a finely cut diamond. The more you turn it, the more you see. And that question is one that was alluded to by the Satan. It is, is there any such thing as true devotion to God on earth? Or is faith just a matter of convenience? Are we really just fair weather Christians? Well, enter into this scene Job's friends, Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar, and they are shocked at what they see before them. Their friend sitting there scraping away at his sores on the ash heap outside the city walls. To them, this scene says just one thing. Job has been rejected by God. They weep and they mourn and they tear their robes and they sprinkle themselves in ashes in, in a grieving sort of action. And in their minds, there is little doubt that they are wondering, what did Job do to deserve this punishment? And yet, to their credit, for seven days they hold their tongues. They sit with him in this posture of mourning and they say nothing until eventually it is Job who breaks his silence. And when eventually Job speaks from his distress, it is to curse the day that he was born. Verse 3, 
May the day of my birth perish and the night that it was said a boy is born, that day may it turn to darkness. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? I have no peace, no quietness, I have no rest, only turmoil. Job's words initiate three cycles of speeches from his friends in which each of his friends address Job and then he responds to them. And the basic premise of their arguments, and this takes up many, many chapters, so I'm summarising many, many chapters in just a few sentences, but the basic premise of their argument is based on this principle of divine retribution to which they hold, that whatever happens to a person in life, whether good or bad, is a direct result of whether that person has pleased God or not. The righteous will prosper and sinners will suffer. That was the general way of thinking back then and we know that for many it is still the general way of thinking now. Job is suffering, therefore they conclude Job has sinned. He must have done something to deserve this. So they urge him to repent and to seek God. Job maintains his innocence and appeals to God for comfort that the friends have failed to provide him. His friends are horrified. They move in for round two, which is really just a continuation or a variation of the traditional wisdom of round one, with the level of antagonism cranked up a little bit and a few extra details added about the fate of the wicked. They persist in their efforts to try and convince Job of his need to repent. Job complains about his friends and increasingly directs his comments away from them and towards God. He questions whether the wicked really ever do receive retribution. The speeches in round three are even shorter. Presumably there's not much else left to say. They've reached a stalemate. Eliphaz, resorts to inventing a fictitious catalogue of sins that Job must have done to deserve this fate. While Bildad reminds Job that he is merely a maggot compared to the majesty of God. Zophar has nothing left to say. He remains silent in round three. Job continues to maintain his innocence. He gives examples of all the injustice in the world and he argues that this world is not how it should be. And he again expresses a desire to plead his case directly before God. A stalemate is reached. But only one of the key questions from the prologue has been answered. Does true devotion to God exist on earth? True devotion that is not concerned at all about self-interest. And Job's faith, even in the depths of suffering, is a yes to that question. God's confidence in Job has been affirmed. The Satan's question has been answered, but Job's question of how a just God could allow suffering to occur remains unresolved. An interlude of sorts is provided in chapter 28. We don't know if these are the words of Job or the words of the anonymous author of this book, 
placed here, but it is one of the most beautifully eloquent pieces of poetry in all of the Bible. It addresses this issue of where wisdom can be found and it sets the scene for the longer speeches that are to come, which will bring the final answers. Time doesn't permit me to read out the entire chapter. We will read just a portion. God understands the way to it, talking of wisdom. And he alone knows where it dwells, for he views the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. And he said to man, fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. Job then presents his final case before God. He highlights his past honour and blessing and the extent of his current suffering and he specifically lists his regard for the truth, his fidelity in marriage, his good deeds towards the poor and the vulnerable and he challenges God to find fault in him. How many of us could do that? God would find lots of faults. But Job challenges God to find fault in him and to put it in writing what his indictment is. While this young man, Elihu, has been standing off to the side observing all of this dialogue going on, and he can stand it no longer. He is the youngest of the four who come to speak with Job but that doesn't make him any less confident of his own wisdom. The others have failed to convince Job and Elihu is convinced that Job, in his own efforts to prove his innocence, has justified himself, but not God. And Elihu is angry and frustrated and he can remain silent no longer. And he speaks with all the confidence of youth and his basic premise, to summarise another very long speech, is that human suffering might not only serve to punish the wicked, God might use suffering as a preventative. Elihu is convinced that the righteous, they may well indeed suffer, but this suffering would be an act of God's mercy and love necessary to prevent some greater calamity befalling them. Sort of sounds reasonable and we hear that argument today. People say, oh yes, God must be trying to teach you something. But from the prologue, because we have that prologue, we know that Elihu has not accurately identified the cause of Job's suffering. Now, it's easy for us to dismiss all of Job's friends as fools who offer up Job a feast of bad theology. But that is not how the Bible presents them. These are learned men. They are confident in their theology and all of them, like Job, believe unshakably in one God who is all-powerful and completely just. One God who forgives and restores everyone who seeks him. 
their views mostly align with the promises in the law. And indeed, the New Testament even quotes the words of one of the friends as scripture in 1 Corinthians and in Hebrews. The basic problem here is not in the truths that they know. It is in the way that they seek to apply them and to extrapolate from them in ways that misrepresent God and also misjudge their friend Job. Now, parts of what Job says are equally disturbing. He curses the day he was born. He accuses God of treating him unfairly and he accuses God even of mocking the despair of the innocent and he demands an account from his maker. It is left to God to have the last word. And when he does, it is quite the last word. He speaks to Job out of a storm and he says, who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. And then in rapid fire, what follows is one question after another from God, all of which serve to illustrate that Job's perspective is tiny and God's perspective is infinite. Where were you, he says, when I laid the foundations of the earth? On what were its footings set or its cornerstone? Who laid the cornerstone? Have you ever given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? What is the way to the abode of light? Do you send lightning bolts on their way? Did you give the horse its strength or clothe its neck with a flowing mane? Does the hawk take flight from your wisdom, Job? And then God points to two creatures. And we often skip over this part of Job because it's sort of hard to make sense of. But he points to two creatures called Behemoth and Leviathan. And we shouldn't skip over these creatures because they occupy two chapters of God's speech. They are important. And from the detailed descriptions that are given of them, many have taken these creatures to be a hippopotamus and a crocodile or some ancient precursor of those creatures. Whatever they were, God was immensely pleased with them. Listen to their descriptions. Chapter 40, verse 15. Look at behemoth, which I made along with you, which feeds on grass like an ox. What strength he has in his loins. What power in the muscles of his belly. His tail sways like cedar. The sinews of his thighs are close-knit. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like rods of iron. He ranks, among, he ranks first among the works of God, yet his maker can approach him with his sword. Or of Leviathan, chapter 41, verse 12. I will not fail to speak of his limbs, his strength and his graceful form. Who can strip off his outer coat? Who would approach him with a bridle? Can you imagine one of the Irwins trying to bridle a crocodile. 
Who dares to open the doors of his mouth, ringed about with his fearsome teeth? His back has rows of shields tightly sealed together. And then in verse 33, nothing on earth is his equal. He is a creature without fear. Both of these animals were created by God. Both of them are fearsome and neither of them have ever been able to be tamed by human beings. Now, the English playwright George Bernard Shaw apparently once said, if I complain that I am suffering unjustly, it is no answer to say, can you make a hippopotamus? And to understand what's going on here, I think we need to think back a couple of weeks to when we discussed the Proverbs. Remember in Proverbs 8, we learned that wisdom was appointed from eternity, from the beginning, from where the world began, and wisdom was what God used to create and bring order where there was no order. Wisdom, we're told in Proverbs 8, was the craftsman by God's side, bringing forth order. And remember, we spoke about all the different kinds of order, the natural order where day gives way to night and the seasons give way to one another and seeds grow and become trees and they produce fruit and more seeds. But there were other forms of God's order as well. God brought forth a moral order where there was none. So things became right or wrong. There was a social order that comes when society is functioning within the bounds of justice and compassion established by God. And there's that order that comes through the regular rhythms of work and rest that God has appointed for us. Behemoth and Leviathan make no sense to us. Let's assume that they're a hippopotamus and a crocodile or, or something similar that has existed before. If you were in charge of creation, would you make a hippopotamus or a leviathan? Would you make a creature that's built like a tank on short stumpy legs that eats grass, that's a vegetarian that kills human beings? What purpose does it serve except fouling up waterways? It makes no sense to us. It cannot be tamed. And yet it is part of God's natural order. And although it cannot be tamed, he speaks of it in glowing terms, of its power. And as for the crocodile with its crazy scales and its snapping jaws, you know, if you've ever been on one of those tours up in Darwin where the boat goes down the river and they make the crocodiles jump, Everyone on the boat is in awe when the, when the jaws snap and they make that big snapping sound. That's not something that I'd be creating if I was in charge. Yet God devotes an entire chapter of his speech to this wonderful animal. Both of these animals are part of God's natural order and we humans have absolutely no idea why. If it was us doing the creating, probably the world would be full of things that we could eat, animals that we could eat, or animals that were cute and fluffy. 
By using the example of these two animals, God is highlighting how little we humans understand about his created natural order. We only know a very small fragment of what there is to know. And both of these animals represent the things that are uncontrollable. You think of a, you think of a storm, the lightning and the thunder, it is magnificent. It cannot be controlled and yet it is part of the natural order. You think of a hailstorm, amazing, but you know that if your car's left out in it, it's going to be ruined. And there is a link between the natural order and the moral order, and it would have been an obvious link for Israelites. The principles by which one was created, by which the natural order was created, are the very same principles upon which the other, the moral order, operates. If you don't understand one, you will not understand the other. And if you want to understand why the innocent suffer, then you need to be able to understand behemoth and leviathan. And the short answer is that you can't and you never will. Job will never understand these creatures, neither will we. Job will never be able to answer all of those other questions that God asked of him and neither will we. Job is part of the natural order, so are we, but we did not create it and we will never understand it because our perspective is this and God's perspective is this. The meaning of his suffering was never explained to him except to help him see that it lay beyond the realm of human understanding. And that realisation alone was sufficient for Job. In chapter 42, his reply is very brief. Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. A wise person accepts that they are, there are limits to what they know and to what can be known. Job's friends thought they had it all figured out according to a simple principle, divine retribution. They trusted their nicely packaged up theology and they sought to apply it blindly to every situation that came their way. But Job's faith was in the God of their theology. They talked about God. Job talked to God. They had plenty of knowledge, but Job learned to trust in the wisdom of God, even though he couldn't understand it. Job teaches us then that to live wisely within God's created order is to accept that there is a difference between the creator and the created. God has given us plenty of instruction that will help us live well within his created order. I'm thinking of the law. I'm thinking of the Proverbs and the Psalms, among many other scriptures. But there are some things that we cannot know 
because God has chosen not to reveal them to us. Job never got an answer for his suffering. And in the end, it did not matter. Once he realised how tiny his perspective was compared to the awesomeness of God, he regretted ever having spoken about such things. And he learned to trust in the sovereignty and the righteousness of God. And that is true wisdom because that is what it means to fear the Lord. Will you join with me in prayer? Father, we have only been able to skim the surface of all that there is in this treasure that is the book of Job. We thank you for behemoth and for leviathan, whatever they may be. Lord, when we look at the hippopotamus or the crocodile, might they remind us that your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. We pray today for those we know who are suffering. Job's story provides perspective, but it does not make suffering any easier. Help us to be comforters, not tormentors, as we journey through life with them in their pain. Amen. Well, I wanted to choose a song for us to finish today that expresses something of that limited perspective that we have here on earth compared to the wonder that lies ahead of us. And the song that I've chosen is, is Endless Hallelujah. Would you like to stand?